Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to How Should I Be Positioned on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. On this podcast, we do like to have thoughtful conversations about the macro and market environments, hearing from our UBS Chief Investment Office, though also from thought leaders from our industry partners. We also like to showcase for you their perspective around asset allocation and how you should think about portfolio positioning. With that in mind, let's meet our guests joining us today from UBS. UBS is Jason Dreho. Jason is the head of asset allocation Americas with the Chief Investment Office. From our partner side, excited to welcome back to the podcast Matt McLennan with First Eagle Investment Management. Matt is the co-head of the Global Value Team and serves as a portfolio manager with First Eagle. So, Jason, Matt, it's great to be with you both again. Thank you for joining our listeners and looking forward to our conversation. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, Dan. It's good to be here. Absolutely. So there is plenty to cover over the next 30 minutes or so, though perhaps we can begin big picture, Matt. So as you know, there has been much debate across our industry as to whether the U.S. economy is in store for a soft landing or a hard landing. So, Matt, how do you see the economic landscape here in the U.S. taking shape over the next six months? Well, well, as we speak, um, the most recent payroll number still exceeds the pace of recovery from the global financial crisis. But I think the labor market here is, is set to soften quite a bit based on the bottom-up commentary that we're hearing from the companies that we invest in and the ISM employment survey. The fact that we're decelerating from pretty rapid growth rates, I think, has numerous commentators comfortable with the notion of a soft landing. But we do see some risk to the soft landing scenario. As I reflect on that, I think that the key thing is that inflation is dominating the headlines today. And inflation at its core is a supply-demand imbalance. And, and a key conjecture I'd venture forth with is that in the absence of a supply-side story in the U.S. economy, we need some form of negative demand adjustment and a reduction in the rate of demand growth may not be enough. We may need a reduction in the level of demand. The former, I'd say, is a soft landing. Um, the latter is a hard landing. And, and when I talk about the absence of a supply-side story, what do I mean? Well, the recovery in the labor force participation rate uh, back to pre-COVID levels is almost complete. So from here on, the labor force growth rate faces the secular headwind of aging demographics. And those demographics are also imposing adverse trends uh, for the dependency ratio in the economy. And thus, that's structurally increasing the role of the government in the economy, and the government is not the most productive economic actor. Um, you know, the economy is also going through this mixed shift to services, uh, which have less scope for productivity than manufacturing. And for businesses more broadly, the political climate has turned to one that's characterized by re-regulation, not deregulation. And, and I'd also point out the cost of borrowing has basically doubled from last year's lows. So business capital formation is slowing too. And finally, you know, you have the question mark around the redomiciling of global supply chain. So put all of that together, you know, without a supply side story, my basic observation is that demand needs to moderate for inflation to dissipate. And the fact that the Ukraine war was an incremental supply shock on top of the COVID supply shock and the secular forces above, I think means that the odds of a hard landing have gone up. Uh, not down this year. Well, thank you, Matt, for your perspective. Jason, curious to hear your thoughts as to how the economic landscape here in the U.S. might evolve in months to come and the prospects perhaps for a soft or hard landing. Thanks, Dan. You know, I think you know, I'm going to sort of piggyback off the, maybe a little bit of the framework that, that Matt laid out. 
regarding the supply side and how it's sort of demand that has to moderate. Um, just you know, for context, our kind of official view is that we still believe across different scenarios of the soft landing has sort of the highest probability. You know, it's officially we'd say 40 percent versus say a 30 percent for a recession and then you know other scenarios. But you know, a little more likelihood that we get a soft landing or softest landing over the next six to 12 months. Um, you know, no official recession as defined by the NBR. Uh, versus a recession outcome, uh, but it's in my case kind of you know, kind of a close to toss up. The reason you know kind of we, we think that way, and this kind of ties into Matt's points about the you know the supply side is, in very simple terms, if you think the economy has like a, a supply curve and a demand curve, the supply curve right now is almost like vertical, at least parts of it are vertical, uh, and so then you have your typical sort of downward sloping demand curve. So as demand shifts up and down, it's all about you know adjusting the prices because we're kind of operating and at full capacity across multiple industries. So if you can get demand to moderate enough, you get prices to come down. It actually outputs declining. Um, and I think the labor market is a good example where uh, there's you know unemployment is quite low. The labor market, by many measures, is tight. There are you know evidence or, or data suggesting there's 11 and a half roughly million job openings versus five and a half million people looking for work. So close to two to one ratio of job openings versus um, you know job uh, seekers. So all, if you just decline the number of demand for workers to something close to five and a half million, you get the labor market back into balance, and that could cool you know wage growth, and that's a key input to inflation. Now whether that can happen or not, that's that's kind of a key question. That to some extent, how quickly some of these supply side issues you know can be resolved versus demand you know moderating, that could certainly have an impact, a big impact on. You know the probability of a soft landing versus a recession, um, and some of these things are just they're hard to kind of know in real time because we're still dealing with distortions from the pandemic. The data is unusually noisy, uh, so I think the conviction level that any of us can have, um, you know, on the uh, you know on our, our you know, forecast right now is you know I think to me is kind of below average. But sort of picking up on that, actually, Matt, I want to go back to you with a question. Uh, you, you made a comment about you know labor demand and the companies that you talk to are kind of curtailing. Hiring, you know, a day or two ago, we saw the stock market in the afternoon sort of sell off, and some people speculated that was because Apple came out and said we're going to slow the pace of hiring. This is a key question: whether are we going to get just you know outright decline in the labor force, or is it going to be just a decline in the pace of hiring, the decline of the job opening? So it sort of cools the labor market in a way that it gets it back more into balance, and that will actually you know sort of a necessary condition to to get us to soft landing. When you talk to companies, you get a sense of, you know, they're eliminating positions, they're cooling the pace of hiring, or they're actually outright cutting. Because a lot of anecdotes of kind of layoffs, which, you know, when you actually look at the data, that's not really happening in significant numbers yet. No, I, look, I, I think we're, we're, we're not really hearing um, mass layoffs yet. Um, I, I think it's just, it's an emergent risk. And, you know, I think the history of labor market adjustments is that even small upticks, in the unemployment rate of 40 or 50 basis points tend to spiral into, um, you know, a year or so of negative payrolls and a meaningful uptick in the unemployment rate by, you know, two, 300 basis points. And so I think history has shown that it's, it's very difficult to kind of calibrate uh, the labor market. Um, and, and I think what makes it more difficult is that, you, you know, you know, we're at a point where sort of, Median, if I sort of look at the Atlanta wage tracker or something like that, is you know it's, it's running close to seven percent. And it, you know if I look at the labor market adjustments over the last twenty years, 
typically it's, it hasn't taken a flattening of the unemployment rate to bring um, that kind of inflation down. Typically to get um, wage inflation to move down by a couple hundred basis points has required a move, a move up in the unemployment rate. So, you know, I guess my, my fear is that uh, while we're not seeing mass layoffs right now, um, that we may be on the path to it. You know, history, I think the last seven or eight or even nine recessions, we've seen unemployment rate has to go up to bring inflation down. So it's a small sample size. But yeah, as you say, history would suggest, you know, we can't get there without it. So does that give you very low confidence that you know, ultimately unemployment has to go up? That probably means a recession. Or do you think the labor market is in such a unique place right now that this this could actually be you know, different and that gives you, you know, a decent amount of confidence that a soft landing is still vi- very viable in possibility? You know, I, I, the, the, the answer is that we just don't know. Um, one thing that is different now is that it's not just rates that are going up. Money supply, as you know, proxied by, say, M2, is now flatlining after growing double-digit annually. So year-to-date, M2 has been basically flat. And this is a very rough transition from generationally high money supply growth to what is a money supply stasis so far in 2020. Markets have reacted to liquidity. And I think in addition to the monetary restraint, in arguably the largest fiscal contraction in post-war history, because we handouts and tax receipts are swelling capital gains and profits. And so, you know, fiscal expansion was a was a boon to corporate cash flows. And so I think that presents a meaningful question mark for margins. So, you know, I, I think we've you know we've got this situation where it's not just the Fed um, moving to a 3% plus interest rate if, if one buys the forward curve. Um, it's that money supply has ground to a halt in terms of the growth rate, and we have fiscal restraints. So I think the aggregate policy settings are, are actually quite tight. And so, you know, in a, in a normal sort of soft landing scenario where the Fed was, say, anticipating inflation, the Fed would be tapping on the brakes. I think what's happened between rates going up and M2 flatlining and fiscal constraint is that we've pulled on the handbrake. And I think it's hard to achieve uh, a graceful stop pulling on the handbrake. So, Matt, maybe we can run with monetary policy a bit further because there has been some rumblings of perhaps a more aggressive path by the Fed in meetings to come. Of course, at this point, we all are well aware of the historic policy measures that have already been implemented. The Fed, of course, has been very influential to how markets have behaved over the course of the first half. So what kind of course do you anticipate the Fed will follow in meetings to come, Matt? And what do you believe the prospects might be? that the Fed trigger a recession as a result of their policy path to stave off inflationary effects across the economy? I mean, the core problem that we're facing as we tighten policy settings is that policy settings were so far away from home base uh, in terms of the level of real interest rates and the size of fiscal deficits um, that, you know, what the Fed is sort of kind of grappling with here is that the real economy may soften enough to create recessionary conditions well before interest rates or fiscal deficits are fully normalized. And, um, you know, the dollar has been very strong in the short term while um, the carry trade has been alive and well. But if we end up getting um, fears of recession growing before we can even normalize policy settings, um, you know, that may have implications for the currency, which in turn um, 
could exacerbate the inflationary dynamic. And so there's a whole bunch of factors that are sort of weighing uh, on you know what actually happens here. And I think um, you know the the Fed is is trying its best, obviously, to um, to chart a measured course. But let's be honest about it: the Fed got it wrong. The the Fed said, "Let's wait until we see inflation," which was in and of itself um, a kind of Arthur Burns like move by the Fed, you know, Arthur Burns being the um, chair back in the early 1970s um, when, when we last got behind the inflation curve. And it's amazing to me that we only finished the monetary uh, taper earlier, uh, well, with the QE process earlier this year. And so this is a Fed that was incredibly late. Um, inflation data had already picked up. Uh, you know, and so, you know, I, I guess the, the one thing that could... Um, help the Fed here is if we see some credible commitment to fiscal discipline in the coming years. But it's just hard to imagine that given the level of partisan politics that we see right now. So I'm just thinking about the, you know, what the Feds will do in the next meeting, the next few meetings through the rest of this year and beyond. You know, 75 basis points at the LFOMC meeting next week looks, you know, very, very likely. Uh, beyond that, it's to become more of a question. And some of the Fed's job, they were behind the curve, but to get to this stage, it's been relatively easy because Monetary policy is still on the accommodative side, given how low interest rates are and where real interest rates are. Once they get after the 75 basis point hike, they approximately let's say a neutral stance, and then anything beyond that starts to get into more restrictive territory. I guess the key question is, you know, how far is the Fed willing to kind of go, ultimately to kind of bring down inflation and balancing the dual mandate of price stability, but also full employment? Right now, full employment, we have that, so we don't have to think about it, but that could be a different story it's in September, but certainly even by December. So when you just think about your forecast, but also how you maybe kind of make a plan for you know, thinking about investments, what sort of assumptions are you making for, you know, the Fed, you know, say beyond next week, like this year, what, do you think they would go to 4%, you know, the economy, even if the economy is slowing? So how do you kind of calibrate the potential scenarios for the Fed? Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. I mean, we, the, the short answer is um, no one has a, a perfect crystal ball to sort of divine these things. I, I would just make the point that the, the presumption that the 3.5% is the neutral rate is, is looking like kind of an artificial construct um, in, in the sense that, you know, if, if wage inflation is close to 7%, you know, even assuming 2% productivity, uh, a trend productivity, which is probably above where it is, um, you know, you're talking about sort of a core inflation here of 5%. So, you know, I guess... The, the, the very presumption that that three and a half percent is the neutral rate is something I would question, um, and you know, I, I, I guess the, the the sort of second order question here is well, what 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 is the ten year Treasury telling us? You know, why is it trading still at around three percent, and why are long dated inflation expectations rather contained uh, when you know we've got the Ford curve talking about 3% plus rates, but wage inflation of seven. And I think to try and understand all of this, I think we have two conflicting forces at work for bond yields. Um, you know, one is the gap between current interest rates and, and wage inflation. But the other is, is that the economy probably cannot handle uh, a six or 7% interest rate because of our higher aggregate level of indebtedness and the negative sensitivity of risk asset valuation to higher rates and the implication of tighter financial conditions, um, you know, for the broader economy. And so my belief is that the, the reason the bond market sort of stabilized 
you know, it, with, it, with a three-handle. It's not because the Fed says that's the neutral rate, but, but because the bond market may be pricing the likelihood that we get a recession on the path to policy normalization. Um, you know, and it may take a recession to pull wage inflation back down to the level of rates rather than rates going up to the level uh, of wage inflation. And that's the only way I can really explain forward inflation expectations being anchored around 2.5%. And, you know, whether or not the bond market's correct here, we're just going to have to wait and see. But it, history would tell you the forward curve hasn't been a, a great predictor uh, of interest rates, nor is the Fed's dot plot. Um, you know, and I, I think I, I mentioned Arthur Burns before in the 1970s, and I think the, the 1970s showed that it can, can take a decade to get back ahead of the curve when the inflation genie is out of the bottle. And I don't think this risk is being priced by bond markets. Um, maybe it's not being priced because we have a lot more debt today than we had in the 1970s. So the bond market's basically saying the choke point for the economy with interest rates is going to be pretty low in real terms which I guess is what you're saying. Well, I mean, like, there, that's certainly an argument why people think ultimately rates can't go very high because there is so much debt, uh, you know, we're kind of financially levered. So when rates go higher, it starts to pinch us earlier and sooner than it would have back in you know, the 1980s or 1990s when the debt levels both in the public sector and the private sector were lower. I think that there's some, some validity to that. Um, you know, but I also, you know, take, you know, agree that perhaps thinking about what is what level does policy actually become restrictive may not be the 2 to 9% that would have been the case pre-pandemic, but in an environment where maybe inflation could be structurally higher, it actually has to get to 3 or 3.5%. And only beyond that does it become you know, restrictive. These are all unknowns, um, which makes you know the, the Fed's jobs really very difficult. It makes the, you know, our jobs as investors more challenging because you know, you know, we have to sort of be humble to acknowledge that you know, no one really knows this. In terms of what the Fed will actually do, you know, as much as Jay Powell will talk tough and sort of wants to invoke his inner Volcker, um, you know, I think the fears and the risk is certainly they, they kind of go the Burns path in the 1970s, which, you know, they were able to bring inflation down a little bit, but I think it wasn't sufficient. And then things kind of reaccelerated and inflation took off again and started in the mid-70s, which if they fear that sort of replication, then the biases, they, they maybe go further, uh, maybe even further than then was necessary. And then, and they get not only recession, but maybe something a little bit deeper than anticipated. So it's a very difficult you know, kind of, you know, balance beam that the Fed is walking on right now. And thus far, it's been sort of, I think, fairly straightforward. But, it, you know, the best thing they can hope for is that, you know, by year-end, the inflation data starts to, to show improvement. And some of the underlying details suggest that can happen in terms of import prices, the slowing down in the housing market. But if wage growth doesn't moderate, then, as Matt said, you know, if it's at 6 7%, you know, core inflation really can't go much lower than, than 4% in that case. And that's just, I think, it's still unacceptable. So that's, I always think, like, what kind of cracks sooner, the labor market or the inflation rate? And, and, you know, that also kind of factors into whether we get sort of a softish landing or a hard landing. And, you know, these are sort of unknown questions that no one has a great answer to right now. Uh, just to touch on equity markets for a few moments, which have, of course, been challenged. And as it stands today, we are officially in an equity bear market. Matt, we want to hear your thoughts in terms of the perhaps duration of this bear market. How long might this last? Uh, the price prospects for further downside from here and further what might be necessary in order to bring this bear market to an end and start a new bull market. Last year, I would argue that we had a generational low in the cost of capital, low interest rates, low credit spreads, high rates of money supply growth. So I think a bear market in equities has actually been necessary to bring future expected returns up as the cost of capital is normalized upwards. You can't have mortgage rates double and high yield um, interest rates uh, double and, and equity markets stand still. 
And I think um, what's happened in this bear market is we've skimmed the froth out of markets with the most speculative subsegment of the equities market uh, pretty much collapsing. I think if you had to try and construct a, a shorter-term positive narrative, it would be along the lines of what Jason was suggesting, that the slowdown in the economy could take some of the heat out of inflation. And we're seeing some signs of that. Um, you know, there, there's a satiation of goods demand uh, leading to retailer inventory builds and, and price discounting that we're seeing in, in the, that we saw already in the Q1 retailer results. Uh, we've seen weakening commodity prices. Uh, we've seen declining mortgage originations. Uh, I mentioned the anecdotal corporate comments on uh, slowing hiring trends. And, you know, we might get lucky. There might be an unexpected truce in the Ukraine. So these are the kinds of things, I think, that could lead to higher risk asset prices in the short term, um, especially given how narrow market breadth has become. But here's the rub in my mind. Any market recovery will constitute an easing of financial conditions. And with only 3.6% unemployment rate, and no real supply-side productivity story, the easing in financial conditions, I believe, would more likely than not be met with more Fed tightening. So I think, for now, the Fed push has become the Fed ceiling uh, until inflation's quite a bit lower, which I think is an impediment uh, to markets simply returning to their 2021 euphoria. Um, so, you know, we might see some rever you know, reversal, you know, but I, I think that uh, we re really need to see um, the macro settings come back into balance. And, you know, we may need a multiple-year macro regime shift to normalize both interest rates and fiscal deficits. Um, it may take years to get money supply uh, back to its pre-COVID historical trajectory. But, you know, with, with equity market multiples close to 20 times trailing peak earnings and, and corporate earnings forecast to rise from here, I think the market, market's probably only pricing a brief deceleration haircut. Uh, and, and I think, you know, what would make inflation decline more quickly is obviously a recession, but, you know, while unemployment tends to gap up pretty quickly over 12 months, it often takes many years to recover. So whether you get some sort of multi-year regime shift in policy settings or a quicker recession and multi-year recovery, I think we could be facing the prospect of several years of macroeconomic uh, disequilibrium. And, um, you know, it's just hard for me to imagine inflation normalizing of its own volition. And if the Fed errs on the side of staying easy and core inflation, to Jason's point, stays high, you know, that would argue for lower multiples in the equity markets. And I just point out that while we can see the argument for some of the more volatile components, components of inflation moderating as they lap and subside from recent COVID and Ukraine spikes, particularly commodities, the sticky components of inflation you know, rent, education, healthcare spend, away from home entertainment, constitute the majority of the purchase basket. And that sticky basket of goods uh, is inflating at close to 6% a year. And so I think it's going to take much softer labor markets for that um, basket to moderate. And so, you know, if I could sort of summarize, I think what we've seen in the markets in terms of multiple contraction reflects the need, the arithmetic need for a higher return, given core inflation's higher today. But it may also be starting to price uh, what could be a handful of years of macroeconomic disequilibrium. So I don't think the latter risk is necessarily fully priced. Some of what dovetail off of what Matt said, you know, the first point is, you know, on financial conditions, it is sort of this, you know, kind of ironic situation that uh, if the market, equity markets kind of rally, financial conditions ease, and it makes it, you know, kind of works against what the Fed wants. So we've been in an environment now for, for many months, you know, certainly since the first quarter, 
where ultimately you have a situation where with inflation being you're uncomfortably high uh, and the labor market being very tight and wage growth being high, the Fed is trying to intentionally tighten financial conditions and slow economy, slow demand to bring down inflation. So until we start to see something on either in the inflation kind of clearly improving, the labor market kind of cooling, that's the mindset of the Fed. And if you have a situation where that's the Fed is trying to tighten financial conditions, it's just hard for, for equities to kind of have a sustainable rally because anytime they do, it's almost like that's kind of counterproductive. So that this environment just means that sort of there's so much upside is capped. Um, it's a choppy kind of, you know, maybe range bond environment. You have to get downside and, you know, something more has to happen because a lot of news is already kind of out there. Uh, and so many equities for the past couple of months have been you know, quite resilient in the face of what's going on with, you know, the inflation data getting worse, central banks getting even incrementing hoggish globally, you know, the news out of Europe getting worse, and yet here we are with the S&P still around like 3,900. So I think there's potentially more downside than there is upside. Uh, you know, but I think you need some a further worse news for the real material downside, you know, sort of a bear case to, to happen. Thinking a little bit more bigger picture, again, to Matt's point about this, Kind of, you know, macro dislocations, disequilibrium. At a minimum, I think we're looking at kind of the year before we start to kind of hopefully fully normalize from the, you know, the pandemic. Much of the activity, certainly in the U.S., is sort of kind of back to, you know, pre-pandemic, at least in terms of restrictions. But globally, we still have China, you know, getting waves of COVID that's causing lockdowns and testing that is disrupting, you know, supply chains. I think we're seeing some healing on that front in supply chains. You know, recently there's some, some good evidence that that's getting better and demand moderation is helping. But just thinking about, you know, the surge in demand for goods back in, in 2020 and 2021, that's easing off, but you almost might need to get a bit of a manufacturing recession, rebalance on the other side before you can kind of normalize whatever the long, back to sort of a long-term trade for goods consumption. And that may take like another year. So it just leads to big sort of swings one or another in, in the sort of the macro environment, at least to volatility, at least to uncertainty, which just again kind of adds to, to, you know, the risk premium concept that, that Matt alluded to. Depending on which of these regimes ultimately kind of plays out, that has you know, equity implications, not just in the level, but also whether you think, you know, growth stocks, you know, will be the better performer, resume their, their resumption in terms of market leaders, value stocks, different sectors and styles, uh, which kind of segues me back to you, Matt, just within the equity markets, what are the areas, given all these different uncertainties that are you, you're looking at from a either size, style, you know, sector kind of composition that you think are the best ways to sort of be positioned right now? Yeah, well, I, look, I think from a, a big picture standpoint, when you're looking at a complex nonlinear system like the economy, it's very hard to forecast the unforecastable. And I think it's in times like this where I, I think the importance is to prioritize bottom-up resilience in the portfolios. And so, you know, I, I think that means identifying businesses that have the benefit of uh, cash flow generative advantaged real assets or entrenched market share positions. And so it's more about the nature uh, of the companies as opposed to the sectors uh, per se. Um, and, you know, I, I think, you know, this could encompass a range of different areas, but like companies that control essential infrastructure or scarce real estate or scaled networks or, you know, branded essential consumer products or precision industrial products or niche float in the financial services sector or embedded software. All of these kinds of companies have a mix of um, incumbency advantage, whether it's in the assets they control uh, or the market share that they have. And I think those sorts of businesses uh, in this kind of environment that are inherently cash flow generative um, are a safer place to be. And I think secondly, in an environment where the cost of capital is under upward pressure, I think you've got to narrow the focus further to the subset of those resilient businesses uh, 
you know, that are available at a, a reasonable multiple of cash flow. Uh, you know, having a margin of safety and price is important. And we've seen that stocks at high multiples have displayed pretty alarming negative elasticity to increases in the cost of capital. So why take this risk uh, where we don't know where interest rates and risk premium will settle? And, um, you know, I think the other thing that we've talked about often over time is, is that, you know, given if you're primarily invested in business and you've got this unforecastable uncertainty, then you know, having a potential hedge makes sense. And, you know, we've chosen gold because over time it's outperformed sovereign paper assets. Um, and uh, I, I think if your fear is uh, a lost decade for equities, um, it's worth noting over the last century that, that gold has had its best decades when equity has had lost decades. And so thus the potential hedge value. And so um, it's, it's only the right kind of businesses that at sound cash flow multiple think that's important and being open-minded to an unconventional potential hedge like uh, like gold. So just sticking with asset allocation and Matt, thank you for the thoughts there on commodities, gold in particular, as well as sharing your equity thoughts. If you look across the allocation table, any preferences come to mind, even looking outside of the U.S. for portfolio diversification, any regions or plays in particular that jump out to you that look attractive? Well, I recently traveled to Japan and South Korea, and I, I was actually struck uh, in, in all my management meetings with the improvement in governments there, with many companies buying back stock today at very depressed valuations. And it's not just cash flow multiples that are cheaper in many cases uh, in markets like Japan and, and South Korea and, and governance that's improved, but the currencies are also generationally depressed versus the dollar, which provides, as you point out, some diversification optionality at a time when the dollar's valuation is quite stretched. In fact, if I step back and I look at the broader fact pattern, you know, I observe that the MSCI EFA is at a 50-year low relative to the S&P 500. And it's also close to a 50-year low just relative to U.S. money supply as measured by M2. So, you know, the United States is this wonderful place to invest in, but it doesn't have a monopoly on big companies. And I don't think it will have a monopoly on currency strength, um, given our policy imbalances and given the Fed will balk at some point. Um, and, and so I think now might be a, a sound time for uh, folks to, uh, who are taking a longer-term perspective, and we take a decade perspective at First Eagle, but for folks who take a longer-term perspective, it might be um, a sound time to start planting some more seeds in international markets. And I, I would just make the additional point that international markets provide a range of unique um, business opportunities that are actually hard to find or replicate in the United States, whether it's in the luxury products arena or the factory automation equipment, uh, or some of the branded consumer staples internationally that have much higher free cash flow yields, or some of the supply-constrained real estate internationally at much higher cap rates in the U.S. Or, um, you know, that you know, if you look at a brewer, uh, uh, you know, in, there are markets, emerging markets, where there's growing demand long-term. Uh, we have some of the longest-duration natural resource plays outside the United States. Um, you know, in the commercial equipment space, there's some really great oligopolies outside the United States. Um, and, and we have these other opportunities in um, well-run investment holding companies where you can get double discounts. You know, they own stakes in other companies uh, that you might like, but the holding company trades at a 30% discount. So I think this range of pretty idiosyncratic opportunity uh, provides uh, valuable industry uh, and country diversification to, I think, U.S. central portfolios at a moment in time 
where international stocks sure look out of favor relative to the U.S. equity market. Thank you, Matt. Yes, some interesting considerations there with respect to investing outside of the U.S. Uh, Jason, as we begin to close out our time together for today, what's the thinking of the Chief Investment Office with respect to asset allocation and consideration of what the next six months might have in store? So, you know, you know we see a, kind of a range of different scenarios and you know, hopefully, you know, the listeners at this point would take in, you know, take account that your conviction levels on where things will play out over the next six, twelve, twenty-four months is relatively low. Um, you know, so it's trying to make strong market directional calls to say we're going to definitely get a, you know, further downside of ten, fifteen, twenty percent, or significant upside. I think that's just a really hard call to make, and that's probably not how you want to approach your portfolio. At the same time, though, it doesn't mean there aren't things you can, you, you know, can't do or can do in your portfolio. Um, you know, thinking about you know, making sure there's exposures to different types of scenarios. So I would very much kind of agree with, with Matt's point here regarding like international equity markets. For, the, for nearly a decade, the U.S. was clearly the upper former, and that was dominated by U.S. growth stocks and large-cap growth stocks in particular. The macro environment that that led to, it's unlikely that's going to replicate this next decade. So the winners of the last decade probably won't be the winners of this decade. Then you think about the valuation story. Uh, you know, what many you might alluded to, like, you know, the relative discount versus U.S. equities is that, you know, you have very low levels. If you go to other markets, you mentioned, you know, you know Japan, think about the U.K., which is one of some political difficulties right now. Um, but the valuation of their equities is, is a steep discount. Um, they tend to be both a, a value and defensive oriented market tied with commodities. So there's a lot of kind of appealing aspects about that. So certainly looking abroad to think about, well, you know, what is actually looks relatively cheap right now. A lot of it is still outside of the U.S. So that's one thing. It does tie into sort of the commodity story. Matt covered gold, but there's arguments for why structurally the demand uh, and, the, and the prices for you know, energy, for, for materials could go higher because, you know, supply is constrained. Even if we get a recession, demand will recover. So I think it's hard to see a lot of downside. Uh, and we know in order to make an energy transition, you, you know, we'll need a lot of investment in, in across the board in commodities. So it's also provides you know, uh, an opportunity to play potential themes over the next decade, uh, and even tactically, but also kind of hedges you against scenarios where there's commodity price spikes that would be inflationary. So those are some of the ideas, you know, that we suggest. A lot of it is like, you know, not a time to make big directional bets, look for ways to, you know, play for different scenarios, make sure your portfolio is diversified because the path forward is highly uncertain. Jason, Matt, very productive conversation today. A lot of valuable guidance as well for our listeners with respect to allocation. Appreciated hearing both of your perspectives and your insights across a range of timely macro and market topics. A lot here, of course, we can follow up on and track. So looking forward to picking up again with our conversation at some point, though. Uh, Matt McLennan, Jason Dreho, thank you for joining us today on How Should I Be Positioned? Thank you so much. You're welcome. And Matt, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Chase. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.